0: welcome to the antioch podcast we're a justice-minded christian church in beautiful bend oregon seeking and celebrating the reconciliation of all things may the word of christ dwell in you fully and give you peace The scripture reading today is from the book of Genesis, chapter 11, verses 1 through 9. Now the whole world had one language and a common speech. As people moved eastward, they found a plain in Shinar and settled there. They said to each other, come, let's make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They used brick instead of stone and tar for mortar. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we will be scattered over the face of the whole earth. But the Lord came down to see the city and the tower the people were building. The Lord said, if as one people speaking the same language, they have begun to do this, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and confuse their language so they will not understand each other. So the Lord scattered them from there over all the earth, and they stopped building the city. That is why it was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of the whole world. From there the Lord scattered them over the face of the whole earth. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Thanks, Sammy morning church good to see you all today my name is Pete I'm one of the pastors here and uh, really glad that you're with us especially if you're uh, just visiting today or a newcomer uh, really glad that you're here and uh, this is a weird story so we're just gonna get into it um, today is the sixth Sunday of summertide, and uh, we're journeying through the book of Genesis and uh, this morning, this strange story comes to us from the book of Genesis, chapter 11. Uh, if you were with us last week, our resident apologist, ornithologist, Raptor Rick Gerhardt, uh, gave us a super breezy, lightweight, elementary <laughs> overview of the flood narratives. Uh, in Genesis 6 through 9, um, which I'm sure was all stuff you've heard before and thought about a lot. So, uh, no, it really was um, so fascinating, especially for those of us that have struggled um, with Christianity's reputation for being anti-intellectual or anti-science, that sort of thing. So I'd uh, encourage you to pull it up on YouTube or the podcast if you weren't here with us. Uh, This morning, we're picking up the story after the flood, And uh, the context is that Noah's family, the survivors have reproduced and repopulated the land. And uh, in Genesis 11, here's what happens next. Now the whole world had one language and a common speech. As people moved eastward, they found a plain in Shinar and settled there, okay? So in the Bible, to move eastward is to move away from God. Um, And as Oregonians, we, of course, know this as well. (laughs) The West Coast is the best coast, and the further east you get, the further from God you get. (laughs) Um, But you see this even in Genesis, in Genesis 3, when God casts Adam and Eve out of the garden, he sends them to the east. And then in Genesis 4, when Cain kills his brother Abel, he flees from God and goes to the land of Nod, which we're told is east of Eden. He was obviously a big Steinbeck fan. So here in Genesis 11, the author tells us that after the flood, Noah's descendants head east. East. And they find this amazing place called Shinar. Uh, It's this beautiful, fertile valley between the rivers in southern Mesopotamia, which is basically modern day Iraq. And the The idea is that these people have been nomadic for so long, and as they're traveling, they come across this beautiful valley and decide to make it uh, their home. But they know that if they want to stay in this nice piece of land, then they need to be prepared to defend themselves against whatever enemy nations or tribes might come and try to drive them out. And so if they're going to settle there, they can't just set up a bunch of tents They need to build something solid. So in verse three, they said to each other, come, let's make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They used brick instead of stone and tar for mortar. Such interesting details that the author gives us here. So the first thing we're told is that they developed this brand new technological innovation. And it wasn't artificial intelligence or virtual reality or the metaverse or the newest electric car. It was a bigger deal than all of that. They developed this technology that would change the world forever. And it's one that we still use today. It's called the brick. Um, Seriously, not many human inventions have done as well as the brick. This thing was a big deal when it came out, because before this, if you wanted to build a city, you would build it out of natural stones, which had to be mined and then cut to the right shape and size and then transported to the job site. It was a lot of work, but this innovative early community figured out how to take sand and bake it into bricks that were all the perfect size and shape and it made building things like houses and walls and towers much, much easier. So they bake a bunch of bricks and then they're ready to build. Verse 4, then they said, come, let's build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we will be scattered over the face of the whole earth. So it's a little tricky to understand their logic here. Why would they need to build a tower in order to protect themselves from being scattered around the earth? So again, this is a nice valley that they're in and if they wanna stay there for the long haul, then they need to be well defended. Um, And if they're not well defended, then somebody's gonna come in and drive them out of the land and scatter them across the earth. So they decide to not just build a city, but a city with a giant tower in the the middle of it. Um, A couple reasons you would build a tower in this day and age. The first is that it would be a place of refuge. Um, A tower would be a place where the residents of the city could a shelter in case of an enemy attack. They could all retreat to the tower and even go up to the top and throw stuff off the top to defend themselves against the invading army from an elevated position. And so uh, this is again why without the tower they would end up being scattered. That's the first reason they wanna build this tower, protection. But there's another reason too, prosperity. They want a tower that not only elevates them above the earth, but also a tower that elevates them closer to heaven. And here's where it gets interesting. If if you're anything like me, you've always thought that the reason they wanted to build this tower up to the heavens is so that they could elevate themselves to the place of God. And so we often picture this tower like uh, a modern day skyscraper that's as tall as it can possibly be. But there's some really fascinating biblical scholarship that's been happening in recent years. And what we're now learning is that most likely, this tower that we call the Tower of Babel wasn't really what we picture as a skyscraper, um, but it was most likely a kind of building called a ziggurat. A ziggurat. In the ancient Near East, a ziggurat was an important part of the temple complex. It was built next to the temple and considered kind of a sacred space reserved to attract the gods, okay? And so here's what's important to understand. It's it's a little bit of a twist from how many of us may have thought about this story before. The purpose of a ziggurat wasn't for people to ascend to heaven, but the goal was that the gods would descend to earth. The idea was that the tower would provide a place for the gods to come and make their nest, so to speak, and make a grand entrance in the temple where they could be worshiped. And so this is kind of an artistic rendering um, of what a ziggurat would look like. This is a picture Of the remains of the ziggurat of Ur, which archaeologists in Iraq have been restoring for the last several decades. So it's about 4,100 years old, and it gives us a pretty good idea. We don't know for sure. Pretty good idea, though, of what the Tower of Babel might have actually looked like. Not a skyscraper for people to go up to God, but a temple for God to come down to earth. Okay, So once we get that, then the story starts to make a little bit more sense. Because what happens in the next verse, which is actually the exact center of the narrative. Verse 5, but the Lord came down to see the city and the tower the people were building. Okay, so interesting. So this is... On one hand, exactly what the people were hoping for, right? It was almost like uh, they had built a birdhouse in their backyard and they were hoping to attract the birds to come and to nest there. Um, They built this temple in their city, hoping to attract the gods to come down from heaven and to live there. They built this sacred tower, hoping God would, would come and dwell there. And God does come down. That's the very center verse of the narrative. But when he comes down, uh, it doesn't go quite the way they were hoping. In verse 6, the Lord said, is, if as one people speaking the same language they've begun to do this, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and confuse their language so they will not understand each other. Okay, so this is where the story gets really confusing, to be honest. We're not given a whole lot of information about what's going on in God's mind here. We're not given a whole lot of information from the storyteller about what his motivation is or what he's feeling or thinking. Um, we're just kind of told what he says and what he does. Um, but one thing that's clear is that God's not pleased. God's not happy with this tower that, um, that they're building. Now, why not? Well, here's the other thing that we've learned from archeology span about ziggurats. Ziggurats were meant to attract the gods to come down and receive worship, but in the ancient Near East, worship consisted of rituals designed to meet the needs of the gods. Okay, so they had a worldview in Babylonia that believed that the various gods of the cosmos had needs. They needed food. They needed housing, they needed clothing, they needed love and companionship and that sort of thing. And so the theory was that the gods had created humanity, had created people in order to meet their needs. And that's what the gods cared about is finding the right group of people who they could go and live with and rely on to take good care of them. Okay, so Old Testament scholar John Walton says that the religious practice in this system was not defined by faith or doctrine, by ethics or theology. It was essentially defined as the care and feeding of the gods. So this is a system that creates codependence, a symbiotic relationship between gods and humans that was entirely transactional. In this system, people would take care of the gods, and in return, the gods would take care of the people, protect them, and bring them to prosperity really interesting, but important to understand this was the mentality that the people most likely had as they built this tower. If you wanted to be successful in life and if you wanted your tribe to prosper, the way to do that was by finding favor with God. And the way to find favor with God is by, to take good, by taking good care of him making sure he has everything he needs. So Walton says, pampered deities make for flourishing cities. So this helps us understand why the people in Genesis 11 believed that building a city with the tower in it would help make a name for themselves, that they would make a God beholden to them and that they would flourish and that their fame would spread. They would be a people favored by God, okay? So the purpose of this tower was number one, protection, but number two, prosperity. And the prosperity they were looking for was based on using God transactionally rather than knowing him and loving him relationally. Which all of a sudden, this weird story doesn't sound so weird anymore. Let me read you what John Walton says here. God's plans and purposes have always been to be in relationship with and to dwell among the people he created. Certainly this passage provokes us to realize that as often as our approach to God reeks of transactionalism, such thinking deserves no quarter in our understanding of our relationship with him. Potential gain in this life or the next should never be the prime motivator of our faith. God is worthy, and that alone should suffice for us to be committed to him in every aspect of life. I am daily challenged by the reality that God does not need my gifts, my attention, my prayers, my worship, or my companionship. I am in his debt, not he in mine. So rather than allowing the people to continue treating him like Santa Claus or a magic genie or a hummingbird, God intervenes. This story is about a God who intervenes. And he intervenes by refusing to let them finish the project they've started. And how does he do it? Verse eight, so the Lord scattered them from there all over the earth and they stopped building the city. So God's intervention in this case doesn't look like it had in the case of Noah and the flood. God doesn't wipe them out. He doesn't even destroy their tower as easy as that would have been for him. He doesn't inflict any form of or violence or harm upon them. God's intervention in this case looks like throwing a major obstacle in their way that causes them to change their course. So specifically, he confuses their languages so they can't understand each other. And as a result, they end up halting construction on this project and scattering across the face of the earth. And what I want to know is why. Why does God do what he does here? Why does he intervene the way that he does? Again, the author doesn't tell us exactly what his motives are. So there's a few different theories. The theory that I think any of us who are familiar with this story um, know the best is is probably the idea that the reason God scatters them across the world by confusing their languages is to punish them for their sin of pride that he's inflicting judgment upon these people for using him to make a name for themselves. So God's offended by pride and he humbles them into the dirt by making them all speak uh, different languages. How many of you have heard something like that before? That the destruction uh, or the halt of this this, uh, tower was God's punishment for human pride. There's a few problems with that theory. There is something to it, but the problem with that theory that really stands out to me is that it makes human diversity a punishment for sin. It presents the diversity of language and culture as a problem to be solved rather than as the rest of the Bible presents it, a beautiful gift to be received and celebrated. Okay, So this theory has actually had some serious consequences throughout the history of the church. Christians that have read God's judgment of pride and consequence of scattering of language and diversifying of culture, people have taken that and said that, uh, for example, in South Africa, that God desires to keep separate languages and races apart from each other. Therefore, something like apartheid can be justified. And of course, we don't have to look that far in our own nation's history of the slavery and segregation of black people. Many people used this exact passage of scripture to justify the separation of languages, cultures, and races. But the truth is, if we look carefully, you can see that if anything, Genesis 11 is actually a narrative that would make the exact opposite point. That humanity's desire is for uniformity and God's yearning is for diversity. So the Babel story, if we take it this way, places us as humans on the side of uniformity and sameness and God on the side of multiplicity. And God calls people toward variety toward diversity in some ways this is God reenacting his creational mandate that he gave to Adam and Eve and then gave again to Noah and his family to be fruitful and multiply and to fill the earth humans in this case said we'd rather stay here with a bunch of people who look just like us and so God instead creates his dream for more languages, more culture, more, more diversity that spread throughout the earth. So the creating of diver- a diversity of languages and culture is not God's punishment on his people. Let's make sure we know that. So if it's not a motivation of judgment or anger, then you can kind of see in the text that it feels like maybe God is feeling a little bit threatened or a little bit insecure. Like he seems a little bit worried that if the people are able to do this, then what else are they gonna do? It's not crazy to to see that in the text. And it's almost like maybe God's motivated by fear. He's worried that this thing is gonna get out of hand and that these people are gonna become too big and too powerful and too independent. And, um, And so God, out of this place of fear or insecurity, intervenes, which, of course, just isn't the picture that we have of God throughout the rest of the scripture. And so if God isn't driven by judgment, and if he isn't driven by fear and insecurity, then why does he stop the people from building the tower? I think that the best explanation can be summed up in a phrase that C.S. Lewis referred to as a severe mercy. A severe mercy is when God intervenes in our lives by allowing disappointment, loss, failure. Why? To punish us? No, because he loves us and he wants what's best for us. When God intervenes in this story, he's not punishing the people, he's protecting them. From what? He's protecting them from themselves. He's saving them from their own dreams. He's intervening by allowing a roadblock, a wrench in their plans, a major inconvenience that is super annoying and frustrating and disappointing at the time, but in the end is part of his plan to be merciful and gracious and to lead them to the life he's made them for, a severe mercy. As I think back on my story, my life with God, there's several places that I can look back At the time, it didn't feel that way, but now I can look back and go, yeah, I think that's what I would call a severe mercy. It wasn't fun, (laughs) but it turns out it was God in his love, in his wisdom, intervening and interrupting my story, saving me from my dreams, changing my plans, not to punish me, but to bless me. One of those stories has to do with uh, Christian ska. (laughs) We all have sketchy pasts, right? (laughs) Sex, drugs, Christian ska, things we're not proud of. I don't know if you were around in the late 90s, early 2000s, Christian music scene, but there was a band called the W's that emerged out of nowhere in the most unlikely series of events. And they played this kind of uh, swingy, uh, punky version of ska music. And um, what was crazy is that this little band, um, almost overnight, went from playing little bars and, and house parties uh, to playing huge sold-out venues and arenas. And in fact, their album, the debut album, First, uh, Fourth from the Last, what. To This Day is the best-selling Christian debut album of all time. Uh, It's a gold record. Um, They won two Dove Awards for this record, the first for the album, the second for the hit single, who knows what it was called? The Devil Is Bad, okay? So we're talking theological depth and insight that (laughs) is really unparalleled in the history of music. Um, this little band went on to open up for DC Talk on the Jesus Freak Tour, which is the best-selling, largest Christian music tour uh, in history. It included a performance for the Pope. Okay, So um, this little band, the W's, came out of Corvallis, Oregon in the late 90s. Yeah, that t-shirt does say, better than communism. Um <laughs> And uh, they sold a lot of records, made a lot of waves, and uh, played for some really big crowds. If you haven't figured it out yet, my dirty dirty little secret is, I was in this band. (laughs) The next picture, you'll see me um, the day before. That's me in the, I don't know what that is. uh, (laughs) A hoodie with a light blue shirt underneath it. Uh, the day before, we were going to travel to San Francisco to re- record our, our debut album. Um, you'll notice I have not a man purse like the kids are wearing these days, but a sling on my elbow. And uh, here's the story. After, or before all of that success and all of that fame and all of that, um, before any of that happened, I was no longer in the band. And the reason was that I broke my arm skateboarding the day before we left. And have you ever seen that thing you do, um, Tom Hanks movie? That was my story. Drummer breaks his arm, um, the band gets big, and uh, long story short, the drummer is no longer in the band. Okay? Um, again, we all have sketchy pasts, right? <laughs> Um, I was 17 at the time, and um, as you can imagine, as a 17-year-old who'd been playing drums since I was a little kid, and my only dream, my only goal in life was, was to be a drummer and to be in a band, and uh, as a senior in high school, it was happening, and it was crazy to hear our songs on the radio and see our videos on TV and go out in public and girls want my autograph. and. All that stuff was happening. And so we had made plans that I was going to finish up high school from the tour bus um, doing correspondence classes. This was basically before the internet. So that was going to be a complicated ordeal. Um, all of my plans, all of my dreams were coming true. And then one day I broke my arm. Um, and everything changed. And the band went on without me. They did really well. And um, it was devastating as you can imagine. And I had no other plans. I was 17 and I had a record deal. So I hadn't taken the SATs, I hadn't applied for college, I hadn't made any other plans. This was my future. And all of a sudden, it was all done. And uh, I remember going to Creation Fest that summer up in the gorge in Washington, standing in a crowd of 60,000 people and watching my old band on stage, playing songs that I had helped write. Um, At 17, then 18, devastating. Um, The truth is, I look back now, 25 years later, and go, yeah, that was sincere pain and real loss. And um, I would never want to go through that again or wish that on anyone else. But I look back now, and what I think of that is, That's a severe mercy. That was God interrupting my plans. That was God throwing a wrench. That was God causing a major roadblock that resulted in me having to go a different direction. It has been a very, very long time since I had any hard feelings or resentment about the way things went down. Because that whole experience and series of events led to me receiving God's true call on my life if you uh I meant to throw it up there if you look up the W's Wikipedia page there's a little footnote that said Pete Kelly was the drummer for a few months in 1997 then he broke his arm got married and became a pastor um (laughs) which is kind of it um It's been a really long time since I had any resentment about the way it went. And I look back now and I go, yeah, in a strange cocktail of my own stupidity and God's sovereignty, I broke my arm and God saved me from my dreams and gave me his plans instead. And uh, I've had other events and circumstances that I could look at and translate the similar way and maybe you do as well. Um, So what's the best way to avoid God's severe mercy in our life? (laughs) Because it'd be nice just to learn the easy way, right? It'd be nice not to have him have to intervene in ways that are going to be painful and disruptive. Well, I would argue that the best way to avoid severe mercy is through the practice of self-examination and confession. See, on the surface, what these people were doing in building the city and building the tower, it wasn't in and of itself sinful, but it was their motivation behind what they were doing, why they were building it, that got to the heart of what God said, I can't let you keep going because I love you too much. So I want to close by reading for you a prayer. And this prayer, I love this prayer. It's called a liturgy for those who worship the wrong thing. Listen as I read this and pray along with me. O oh Lord, we were knit in the womb to worship, but how quickly our adoration splits and refracts when we cannot touch your face. Impatient, we trade our inheritance for pocket change, our banquet for scraps, our life for death. We have neither melted gold nor carved from stone, but we have fashioned idols with our hands. We are master craftsmen, craving, thirsting, seeking what is not you. We can list our golden calves by name, sex, money, power, comfort, approval. But, O Father, unclench our tight fists so we can see the false gods we have made of your blessings, family, health, Work, vacation, coffee. (laughs) We confess the disordered loves we have never examined. Oh Lord, we settle for so little. You are a jealous God and your perfect love will not stand to see us on bended knees before any throne but your own. Help us to trust the nail haunted hands that loosen our grip on what we have placed before you. O Christ, may we lose our appetite for artificial joy, instead hungering for what is real. May we tire of serving multiple masters and ache for the affections of one. May we set the cross at the center of our gaze. May we proclaim with reordered hearts that only you can satisfy, that only in you are hope secure. May the emptiness of our own creations point us to the fullness of you. Amen.